turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Mark, and we're going to continue our study in this gospel. We're going to be looking at a passage in Mark chapter 9, so turn there with me if you would. Now, many of you are aware that, uh, very unfortunately, Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash just uh, a week or, or however long ago. Uh, tragic. One of his daughters was with them. I believe six passengers were killed in this heli- helicopter crash. Um, nine, I'm sorry. Nine. Wow, that's a lot in a helicopter, huh? What a tragedy, especially for his wife and his other children, to lose their dad, lose a sibling or a daughter. Wow. But also what I find interesting, and this is this is more from a, you know, let maybe a very different perspective, but if you, I usually check ESPN. I like to keep up with my sports team, the Orlando Magic, and well, God bless them. Um, how are my, how did my Eagles do? Well, they're not in the Super Bowl today. Oh, well. Um, but then again, neither are the Pats. So, you know, I'm okay. Um, we're going to have two different teams, the 49ers and the Chiefs. Great. You know, go um, whoever. I don't care. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the truth is, that as you go on to ESPN, they love to talk about who's the greatest this, who's the greatest that. Is Kobe Bryant the greatest basketball player to have ever lived? Sounds like some of you already have opinions on this. I mean, is Michael Jordan, is LeBron James, is Kobe Bryant? There's another, a couple of other names we could throw in there. Um, Kobe Bryant, they say, is the most savvy or has the most finesse in how he moves and and makes shot you know opens up to make shots that other players can't. Um, LeBron James, if you're following, just stepped into third place now with the most points ever scored in a career. And um, there are two others that are ahead of him, but they're generally not in the discussion, though they're great players, in the discussion of who is the greatest basketball player to have ever lived. Michael Jordan happens to have the most rings. He has six. I believe Kobe has five and LeBron James three. And so people say Michael Jordan is the greatest. He has, of the three, he has the highest percentage in, you know, baskets made. So the question then is, what measuring stick do you even use? Because I just used three different ones in this discussion. But, you know, it, it amazes me. And, and some of those uh, commentators are so passionate. And, wow, I'm just amazed at how passionate they are about who they personally think is the greatest basketball player. Or, you know, who is the greatest athlete ever? Is Michael Jordan? Because we see him, of course, in basketball, but we then see him, he he tried to play baseball. We see him on the golf course. Um, You know, maybe Babe Ruth is the greatest player ever. Or, you know, maybe Tom Brady. I mean, after all, Tom Brady, how many Rings has that championship rings has that guy ever won? I mean, it's amazing. So, you know, but what measuring stick do you use? I know my brother, Chris, I I was, my family is just, we were really into sports. And my brother Chris, when he was 12th grade, graduated, he, they, they spread out honors, you know, you know, the, I don't know, the, the smartest, the most gifted in arts, business, um, and then the most athletic. And my brother Chris won the most athletic. In the fall, he played football, made all conference in this 
in the uh, winter, he wrestled, got second in state, um, and I still think he should have won that match. Anyway, but the, in the spring, he played baseball. He was a great pitcher. When he went to college, he had some scouts looking at him. So, you know, I'm really proud of my brother. But what measuring stick did they use? It was probably who won, who achieved the most accolades in more than just one sport. Well, they figured that he did. Now, I realize that not all of you play sports, and frankly, many of you could care less about sports. And so this right now is completely irrelevant to you. Thank you, Pastor Mike, for yammering on and on about one of the favorite things that you love to watch and do, sports. Well, now it's just watch. But the truth is, this is so very relevant to our everyday life. Because in sports, they use a measuring stick for who's the greatest. I want to ask you, in your life, what measuring stick do you use? Because the truth is, we all have wrestled with this concept of greatness. And if we haven't longed to be the greatest, we have longed to at least be great, to be applauded, to be admired, for people to look up to you. That's a reality check for some of us. What have we accomplished? Who does admire us? You know, it's, it's beyond winning the awards and the titles. But can I ask you, why do we even do this? Why is this question of greatness even something that we think about? And it's because we have this longing in every single one of our hearts to be valued. You cannot escape it. It is there. God planted that there to be valued. But where we find that sense of value now enters in the brokenness of our nature that looks in so many different ways to find that sense of value. For many, you grew up and you were fed by the praises of your parents. But unfortunately, what happened is you became a people pleaser. For, for others, like myself, I found accolades in sports, and so I lived and breathed sports. I watched sport, uh, Wide World of Sports uh, like every Sunday afternoon, and I just got stoked in watching these athletes, and I dreamt what it would be like, and I used sports as my prop, as my crutch, as a way for me to find value in who I was. But the truth, church, it's inescapable. Where will you find your value? And I want us to look at this because even the apostles, even the apostles wrestled with this. This is real, church. This is where we live. We want people to like us. We want people to praise us. We want people to look up to us. And, and, and we're, gonna, we're gonna need to look at it. And it's not just in sports or accomplishments, but we find so many different avenues for people to be able to say, wow, you are valuable, but we long for this. Now, that we should find our value is real, but where we find it, that's what Jesus begins to get into. I want us to look at this. So <coughs> I want us to ask, what's the danger in this, wrestling with greatness, and how do we deal with it? 
So if you're there with me, Mark chapter 9, I'm only going to read verses 30 to 35. I was planning on reading more and getting more into it because this really is an extended question that goes beyond verse 35, but we're not going to get into that. I just, I just don't believe that we have that much time, and, and I really want us to wrestle with this question of greatness. And, and some of us, we, we may think that we really are exempt of it, and maybe by the end of this message, you're going to realize perhaps not. Perhaps this rabbit hole goes a little bit deeper than what we first imagined. Verse 30, are you there with me? They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. Okay, so are you with me here? Remember, he, they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, as we call it. <clears throat> the nine had been trying to cast out a demon from this young man and failed miserably at it, got into arguments with the Pharisees, teachers of the law, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and now Jesus comes in and saves the day. He casts the demon out, and he says, you see, guys, this kind cannot come out apart from prayer. And we talked about that, this concept of prayer and intimacy with God and faith, and faith that even moves mountains. And what is all of this? How relevant is it to us today? So when Jesus has all done this, he then leaves there and he passes through Galilee. And chapter 10, he finally arrives in Judea on the other side of the Jordan. But in the meantime, we have this story unfold as he is teaching. He's using this moment to this time to teach his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. So traveling through Galilee to Judea, the other side of the Jordan, we read in chapter 10, verse 1, they pit stop in Capernaum. What happens here? When he was in the house, we would assume that's Peter's house, Mark chapter 2. Remember, they opened up the roof and let the paralytic down. Jesus healed him. Yeah, that house. I don't know, maybe Peter's still looking up at the ceiling. Ah, Jesus. They came to Capernaum. When they came to the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Underline that. Who was the greatest? They wrestled with the question, church. Sitting down. Okay, when you're sitting down, you're assuming a position. A rabbi assumes a position of teaching. So, oh boy, Jesus is sitting down now. You know, okay. And sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. I want us to look at this. Not a lot of what Jesus tells them. Actually, one sentence. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. On the road, they had an argument. It wasn't 
a discussion. It wasn't a time of truth-telling. It was an all-out argument. And it wasn't just between one or two or three of them. One, okay. Two or three or four of them. It was, they were all a part of this. They all participated. They were all arguing about who was the greatest. I want to ask the question, why on earth would they discuss that issue of greatness at this time? I want, to, I want you to see why they would do that. First of all, imagine you're Peter, James, or John. You just had this amazing experience with God. You saw Jesus transfigured to be bright as the sun, and Moses and Elijah were right there with him. Wow. You saw a cloud immediately envelop them in this on this mountaintop, literally mountaintop experience, and <clears throat> excuse me. And you hear the voice of God. I'm sure it wasn't like Cecil B. DeMille's, but it was the voice of God coming out of this cloud, and He's saying, "This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to Him." And we looked at how, in that context, why the father would even say that because of what Mark is developing in his teaching. Can you imagine experiencing that? And then on the way down the mountain, they ask me a question about Elijah. Did he restore all things and et cetera, et cetera. And, and Jesus said, you know what, by the way, guys, shh, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody. Now, we don't know if Jesus meant don't tell, don't go out and tell the people about this, or don't tell the other nine in addition to the rest. So in this argument with the disciples, the, the apostles, did they bring this up? They may have obeyed Jesus and not brought it up, but guess what? <laughs> Guys, don't forget, we were the ones that Jesus privileged to take him up onto the mountaintop. Well, by the way, Peter, James, and John, what on earth happened up there? Can't tell you. It's a secret between Jesus and us, I guess. Don't you hate that when, when you were little and a sibling says, oh, I know a secret that I can't tell you. Yeah, and it's like, come on, let's go outside. If it's my brother, let me beat you up first, throw you in the trash can, and by then you will tell me what the secret is, right? I'm just being honest. We didn't like that. We would beat each other up and beat the secret out of them. But I'm sure they didn't do that. But I can't help but wonder, was there this sense of we are the privileged three? And when they come down the mountaintop, what do the three see? Oh, um, by the way, guys, just to remind you, we all were casting out demons before this, and we came down the mountain, and so obviously they have cast out demons before, but on this occasion, by the way, guys, um, Jesus had to come to your rescue, and you couldn't do it. Failure, capital F. Now, I'm being facetious, but to a degree, there is this sense of competition. Wow, the privileged three. Wow, you guys failed. In fact, you had to be, get all defensive and up in the face of the Pharisees and argue with them about this. 
Come on, guys. I mean, who really is the greatest? Can't you just feel that after this experience that this would be actually a natural question? Oh, and by the way, who is the greatest? My question is, in this discussion, what measuring stick did they use? Experience? I mean, after all, Peter, James, and John, it wasn't the only time that Jesus pulled them aside. There were other times. Later, when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells the other nine, hey, guys, stay right here. We are going to go on. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him a little bit further into the garden. And then he says, wait here while I go over there to pray. Now, there was this sense in which the three were closer to Jesus for any number of reasons that we could speculate. But that's what I don't want to get into because I am sure that's what part of the discussion was. In addition to the fact that they failed, there was this sense of not just favoritism or closeness to Jesus and maybe who he liked the most, or just maybe that they didn't think about, I'm sure. Who did Jesus want to pour more into? Because maybe their hearts were a little bit more stubborn than the other nine, and they needed a little bit more of Jesus's attention. I'm sure they didn't think of that. But closeness and privilege, was that the measuring stick? Or the fact that you succeeded or failed. Even in the body of Christ, I think we can use measuring sticks that we really shouldn't. We compare ourselves with one another. Now, the, the truth is, for many of us, we, though we long for greatness or doing something great, it, it, it's not along necessarily the lines of accomplishments. Um, we may not have accomplished something great, we might think. that We have tried, and, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to do something great. I, I believe that God, in the grand scheme of things, he wants you to do something, to do things that are great. I'm going to call you out. Stephen, do something great with your life. Meredith, do something great. And you guys are. Hosanna, do something great for the kingdom of God. But you know what? Here's the temptation. If I do something great, what does that make me? Great? We need to watch our attitude. So I'm not saying don't do something great. If you, if, if you hear me saying that you've missed not only my point, but I truly believe Jesus' point. So I'm not saying don't do something great, but is that really what we're trying to do, to do something great in the eyes of people? You know what? Maybe that greatness doesn't have to do with accomplishments. Look what Jesus says here. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. 
in all honesty, at first glance, it seems as if Jesus is just simply saying, get rid of your measuring stick. Get rid of your measuring stick. It is not about who you think I'm the closest to, where maybe in Jesus' mind, he's thinking, the reason why I'm so close to you is because you need me to more than the others. Or how, how much have I accomplished? He, he, he's, at first glance, it seems that he's just simply saying, get rid of that measure, measuring stick. Get rid of these comparisons amongst yourself. Though he is certainly saying that, I think he's saying more. He's calling them to servanthood. If you want to be great, then... Seek to be last. Now, I I don't think that when he's saying, hey, when you're competing in the race, purposely come in last. I don't think he's saying that. But he's saying, seek to promote others. Don't seek to be the master and the Lord and the leader as much as you would seek to be the servant. Jesus came to be the servant of all. And so maybe in our minds, okay, well, Jesus is saying, be humble. And so now our measuring stick in a load of this is humility. Think about that one. It's godliness. And so we begin to measure ourselves. You know, here's how much godliness I have. And, oh, you have only that much. I feel so much better about myself. Come on, church. We think about this stuff, don't we? And the truth is that Jesus is saying more than just Get rid of your measure or, or change your measuring stick. You know, I, I had a great difficulty when I came to Christ at age 14 as I was now transitioning from this old kingdom into the new kingdom. Because in the old kingdom, it was all about sports. It was about being first. It was about winning. It was about success. It was about, you know, trophies and accolades and praise and earning my parents and especially my dad who was a coach in several sports his approval and all of this and that's what I looked forward to and I longed forward and I and I longed for it and I was a total people pleaser as a result <laughs> I I dreamt about sports I dreamt and I've shared this with you about being about being that guy who would hit that grand slam at the bottom of the ninth at the at the you know down by however many points but with that grand slam in the ninth inning in the in the world series winning the winning the world series ah, Mike Curtis yeah, that was me in the old kingdom, but now I'm in the new kingdom, and oh, I don't want to think about that. I want to think about how many souls that I can say, how many souls did you win this week, right? And, and comparing this sense of godliness. How silly is this? But church, we do this. And, and sometimes when people talk about how they have grown in areas, we feel kind of bad about themselves because what we're really doing in our mind is we're thinking, wow, you have grown so much, but when I look at myself, I don't see that happening. And we feel devalued. We feel, we can even feel worthless. So is Jesus simply saying, change your measuring stick? I'm going to say, yes, he is. But he's saying more than that. Think about this. He's saying that the measuring stick that my father uses is all about character. But it's a certain type of character. It is the one that is the servant, that is humble. Here is the irony of this. Now listen. 
if I am wrestling with this issue of greatness and validation and am I valuable and, and I, I come across this passage and so I throw my old measuring stick away that I used in the old kingdom, kind of brought it with me into the new kingdom and I realized, well, I shouldn't do that. So the measuring stick Jesus wants me to have is humility. So do I use that as a measuring stick now? Because humility, here's the irony. Humility says, I don't use any measuring stick. I don't compare myself. If I'm going to compare, if, I, if I'm going to look at other people's, I'm not going to see how I measure up. I will only see what they have done and the character they have grown in, and I will applaud them, and I will build them up. The servant doesn't try to outserve the other servant. That's That's completely contrary to the very purpose of being a servant. The purpose of being a servant isn't so that everybody look at me. The purpose of a per servant is, Master, can you take the stand? Can you sit at the head of the table? Can, how may I serve you? How, can I wash your feet? See, that's the servant. There, where's this place for jockeying of position? Where's this place that says, you know what? I can serve better than you. I serve Jesus more than you. I'm godlier than I'm more humble than you. Yeah. Yeah, once you get to that one, you realize, wow, the irony of it. Jesus isn't just saying, change your measuring stick. He's saying, throw it out. Stop the comparing. Because this is what the Father admires and longs for and wants to see. He's looking for people who serve. He's looking for people who are humble. He's looking for people who are really wanting to get rid of the measuring stick. Can I ask you, who do you think will be greater in the kingdom of God? Jonah or Noah? I've talked about this before. Jonah, the rebel prophet, won 120,000 to the Lord. Now, we don't know the depth of the commitment there, but there was revival. There was repentance. Jesus even talks about it, that the, Noah, that the Ninevites will rise up because they repented, and they will judge you, Capernaum, because at least they repented, and Capernaum, you have not, even though the very Son of God was in your midst doing miracles. So there is this, they, there was repentance there, real, genuine, 120,000. Whoo, what an amazing accomplishment. I don't know of a, a greater accomplishment in winning people to God in the Old Testament. Maybe I'm overlooking somebody, but that's amazing. How many did, you, did Noah win? His family. Because no one else was aboard the boat, the ark. No one else Turn to the Lord. Now, maybe people did repent and turn to the Lord. They just died before the flood came. That's possible. But the only evidence that we have of his accomplishment, because he was called, Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness, his family. That's it. But yet, Noah obeyed the Lord in everything. So, who is the greatest? Now, of course, I've just set you up because the truth is neither. We, we're not going to say either or any of them are the greatest, but at least character is above accomplishments 
The truth is, church, we get rid of the measuring stick. We don't compare ourselves with regard to our accomplishments, and neither do we with regard to our character. But character is more important. In fact, it's so important, I seriously doubt that Noah ever used a measuring stick to compare himself. He simply called people, follow the one true God. Before it is too late, follow him. Follow him. I I do appreciate Tim Tebow when he was in college and was interviewed so much. Whenever he had an amazing game, which was like almost every time, and they asked him, Tim, we love the way you, j- you have the intangibles when it comes to a quarterback. We loved that little shuttle pass that you did to Hernandez. And we just love the way you, you faked and then you ran 20 yards for a touchdown. How do you do this? Let me tell you about my team. It was always about the team. Let me tell you about the coach. We worked on that play so hard this past week, and he, over and over, and I can't tell you how many times I blew it, but the coach had us work until we got it down. That's why it worked. It, the praise belongs to the coach. Constant deflecting. And of course, when, he's ever, when he was ever interviewed, he would always say, before I answer anything, I want to give praise to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Always deflecting. This concept of comparing, even though he won the Heisman Trophy as a sophomore, it was always deflecting, always giving other people the praise. But there's something that still longs within us for this sense of greatness, however we might find it. You know, when you look back in the Old Testament, it's interesting when you compare Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 11, it says that the people who built the tower did so to make a name for themselves. And it's immediately followed in the next chapter by God telling Abraham, I'm gonna do all of this for you and make your name great. God will make your name great. It's not something that Abraham strived after. See, the very reason why God needed to bring confusion is because of this self-sufficiency, this humanism, this constant looking inward of making their name great. This is serious, church. And and if we're caught up in this, I'm going to tell you, abandon it. Because that was the very reason why God judged them and God confused their language because he foresaw that this was going to be perhaps an even, at least an equal problem that they faced during the flood, and he was not going to bring the flood, so he needed to step in. Within just a few hundred years of the flood and, and now man repopulating the earth, and, and they were already becoming confused about this concept of greatness and the measuring stick that they would use. And so Abraham is assured, Abraham, look, don't worry about making your name great. Now, he didn't tell him that. He just simply added the second part. Leave it up to me. That's my job. Don't you worry about it. So church, God may use you to, in our generation, do something absolutely great. And, and, and yes, some of you may do greatness up to here and, and greatness up to here in men's eyes. But don't worry about striving after that. That is up to God. Let him make you great. Let him work through you to do something great. But don't set your eyes on it. As soon as you do, Jesus is going to say to you, I'm sorry, do you want to be first? You need to learn to be last. 
You need to learn to serve. You need to take upon yourself the attitude of a servant, just like Jesus did, who being in the very nature of man, humbled himself and became obedient to death. Jesus actually has already primed them with this answer to be the servant of all. Because on the way from wherever they were to Capernaum and on to Judea, there he is teaching his disciples, at least by the time they get to Capernaum, they have wrestled with this question. So who do you think is the greatest? And I'm sure that this selfish ambition that gripped each of their hearts, promoting them. Oh, I think I am, or I think Peter, James, and I think we will be. James and John, I'm sure they had it because you remember they were the ones that came to Jesus and said, hey, you know, when you come in your kingdom, could I sit at your right and my brother at your left? And, and Jesus is thinking, really, please. We, we've been over this. But they're striving for greatness. In this Striving for greatness. Jesus has, do you remember, do you remember what he said? I, I, I didn't touch on it yet. But do you remember what did he teach them on the way to Capernaum? Luke says that as soon as the demon was cast out of the boy and everyone was marveling about it, he turned to his disciples at that time and said, hey, listen, guys, the son of man will be betrayed and rejected by the elders and he'll die, but on the third day, he'll be raised up. Matthew and Mark focus on Jesus did this when they came, when they were passing, when he was passing through Galilee. So that means he did it at least twice, at least twice. See, Jesus has already prepared them, the son of man. The one who should be considered the greatest, he's going to die. And he is bringing them back to this concept. You remember? Deny self, take up your cross, and follow me. You know, I think it's really easy for us, even as Christians, to wrestle with this issue. Who is the greatest? And, and, and you may have heard it, you know what, get rid of that don't, don't, don't use a different measuring stick, and in fact, use a, don't even use a measuring stick at all. And you may have heard this before, but Jesus now is talking about the cross and the resurrection. And I want to conclude with that. To do that, I, I, I want to use an illustration for you that I think will help make sense here. My kids growing up watched the movie Pollyanna about 30 or more times. They loved it. And, and when she would talk about her dad being a preacher and preaching on the glad passages in the Bible, and there's over 800 of them, and in essence, in a very humble way, telling the pastor, instead of preaching wrath and condemnation so much, why don't you preach on the glad passages? But there's a moment in this movie in which she and her orphan friend, who's a boy, they find themselves in the yard of an old who they believe is an ornery, crotchety man. And he finds them, I think, climbing at one of his trees, calls them down, and they have, he eventually invites them into the house. And in this 
beginning of a friendship that develops, Pollyanna notices a prism. It, it, it's just glass cut in a certain way that when dangled in front of the light, prisms divide that light into rainbows and it reflects beautifully. And so what they do is they gather all of the prisms that are around light shades everywhere they can find and they string them across the window and open the curtains, which he, by the way, apparently hadn't done it forever. And then the sunlight shines through the prisms and it casts the, you know, multiple colors around the room as they, as they, da as they you know, move back and forth. And as the, 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 it's just, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful display. What would you think if one of those prisms said to the other, you know what? I think the rainbow of colors reflects through me the best. And the other would say, ah, but you're so small and I'm so much larger. No, I'm better than you. And the other would say, no, because I am of a different quality. I'm not just glass, I'm crystal. Oh, the colors are so vibrant when they shine through me. And here's a reality check. Number one, someone created that prism. Number two, someone cut that glass or crystal just right for the light to reflect. And thirdly, where did they even get this light? Does it come from themselves? It comes from the sun. You get my point. And here we are talking about how great we are, and we are merely prisms of God. We are simply crafted by his workmanship, shaped by his skill, so that the God himself can shine through us. Where is there any room for personal praise? Zero. Zero. This is completely God. Now, Luke, I believe, chooses to focus on this element because when he tells the story of Jesus casting the demon out of the, the young man, the boy, it ends with, after this happened, everyone marveled at the greatness of God. Now, first of all, I'm just wondering, well, I, I, it's interesting that Luke doesn't say marveled at the greatness of Jesus, which would have been totally fine. But even so, Jesus would have probably, you know, I only do what I see my father doing. He would be that Tim Tebow deflecting the praise. And that's his nature. I came to serve. I even came to serve my father. And, and that which I do, I have yielded so that I only do by the power of the Spirit himself. And so I, I can just imagine him as he did many times just offering that praise to God. But as they did this, now they segue into this question, this argument of who's the greatest. And Luke brings us inadvertently to the conclusion, you know what? It is not about how great you are. It is only about how great God is. And so Jesus walks them through, not in fine detail, but he walks them through the cross. He walks them through the resurrection. He teaches them along the way. And I believe what he would want to say, two very quick things, and we're done. I want to close here. Number one, the greatest servant has no measuring stick, and he willingly lays his life down for others. And number two, it is the cross 
in which we find our value anyway. It is the greatness of God that he saw fit to shine through you. And the only reason why it can shine through you is because by the cross, this crud and junk that you were, that you were he has sculpted and shaped and cleaned and purified. And that is the only reason why he can even shine through you. Where is the praise in that for yourself? And so we are, the, the Jesus' discussion of the cross causes us to say, it is through this, the cross, that I find any meaning, any value, any sense of love. He didn't choose to discard me. He made me and bought me as his very own. You belong to him. You were broken. You were misshapen. And he shaped you. He crafted you. You are his workmanship. You're his craftsmanship. And as he's cutting, and as he's sculpting, and as he's shaping you, and some of this church is hard. Don't look around and start comparing. Just let the master do this work through the cross and the resurrection. Working in you, sculpting, crafting, creating, and shining. Let him shine through you. Let him display his glory, his majesty, and his greatness through you. Abraham, what did he do? He only did what God was able to do through him. Church, our only response can be this. I am your servant. Use me. That's what Mary said. Have it your way. Can you say that? Can that be what beats in your heart? Instead of this measuring stick, comparing, finding our value if we're better, it is Jesus, his love for me, and what he has accomplished for me. You're his workmanship. Let Jesus, Jesus, his greatness shine through you. Can you stand with me? Father, thank you just for your goodness, that you would call us. You're the one that has privileged us. You're the one that has cast your favor our way to every single one of us. You're the one that has sculpted and formed and even cut. You're the one who has scooped the dross to remove it. You're the one who has scrubbed and cleaned and wiped smooth. And you're the one that shines. I just ask you, Father, that as your servant, that we would yield to you. This is our place. Father, what would you have me do? As you apply the surgeon's knife, the scalpel, to my life, what would you have me do? As you allow me to go through this so very difficult time, what would you have me do? To sculpt me? To shine through me? I am your servant. Use me.
as you desire. Father, I pray that these internal arguments and questions and wonderings that we have had about greatness and value and where do we even find it, bring our eyes always back to you, Jesus. Because it is all about you. Your immense love that you would call us to be your own. That you would lay your life down for me. For me, God. As we come to the table this morning, God, as we reflect on what you, Jesus, have accomplished for us through the cross, allow this time to be that moment in which we assure ourselves my sense of value and who I am is all wrapped up in you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for your greatness.